0: reading is Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 39. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? At once his fame began to spread throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons And the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. He answered, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went through Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons, the word of God for the people of God. Please be seated. Well, thank you once again for indulging me and and giving me the time to share a little bit about my trip to Israel. For those who are here today, this is your first time here last week I began a series uh, on sharing about my trip to the Holy Land. And so I'm preaching and we're learning about uh, the various biblical passages that I visited. So this is really cool for me and I hope it's cool for you. And if in any way the scripture comes to life even more for you this morning, uh, then I feel we've accomplished what this series is all about. So this morning I'm going to tell you a little bit about our time in Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum, uh, like last week, was on the Sea of Galilee. Last week we talked about Magdala and some of the surrounding regions. And so today we are talking about Capernaum, uh, which is where our scripture took place today. So all of the scenes you will see uh, have something to do with what we just read. Uh, But real quickly, I got a new clicker, so I'm still learning how to use it. Uh, Here we are uh, once again. We are around the Sea of Galilee, as you can see. And my clicker also has a laser pointer So, you can see right there in the middle of that circle is where Capernaum uh, is located. It's still located. The ancient city is there. The ruins are there. Uh, It's on the northern point of the Sea of Galilee. So that was about as far north as we went uh, during our trip. But there was much to learn um, in this area. One of the most frequent questions that I got uh, about going to the Holy Land was what was the weather like? People want to know what did it feel like and probably the, the, the best way to illustrate it is think about Arizona or Nevada this time of year. Uh, so maybe not the most pleasant point but like there weather can change and it can do some strange things. In fact the morning that we were at the Dead Sea one of the hottest places on the planet it was in the low 70s and there was a cool breeze. They said it, was, it, was, it, was, it, was, well, it felt good uh, compared to the last 20 years when they had gone there, it was well over 100 degrees, even in the morning. Uh, when we were at Capernaum, uh, it was over 100 degrees. Um, in fact, a lot of people's phones stopped working. We used our phones primarily for our cameras. And so, you know, sometimes your phone gets overheated and it says, you know, it's, it's got to stop working. It's got to shut down. Well, that's what happened to some of us. Um, it didn't happen to me. So I was able to get some good pictures there in Capernaum. So uh, thank goodness for Google Pixels. They're good phones. I just inadvertently promoted a product. That's not what I'm trying to do during this sermon time, but it worked for me. So we were in the region of Galilee, and we visited the town of Capernaum. You can see that on the sign there, Capernaum, the town of Jesus. Now, you will see it says Capernaum, and actually, I believe it's in Arabic. Uh, The the name of Capernaum is Nayum, and so, of course, you can hear Capernaum in that. Uh, But this is the town of Jesus, and we'll talk a little bit about why is it called the town of Jesus? Is it ever referred to as the town of Jesus in the Scripture? And not directly. Uh, but Capernaum uh, is called the town of Jesus because he spent so much time there. It was cited in all four Gospels, and so Jesus was there a lot. It was practically like saying it was his hometown. He was there so often. Some look at Mark chapter 2, verse 1, which if you have your Bibles open, you can just look right over. Because it says, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And so, that is often why we call it the town of Jesus. And some people even say, well, wow, Jesus had a home there. And we're not sure of that. Um, In fact, that kind of contradicts this whole notion that the Son of Man didn't have a place to lay his head. And so, uh, we don't know. Probably more than likely, it's called Jesus' hometown because he spent so much time there. He had people there that were like family, and so that's why it is called... Uh, the town of Jesus. It was really the center of Jesus' public ministry. And so it's not a big place, as most of these ancient cities and towns are. They're not even as big as Black Mountain, and we don't call this a big city. Well, these places were even smaller. Until you got to a place like Jerusalem, most of these towns were very, very small. So that was, of course, the case with Capernaum. But despite its size, it was still a very important city. What you're looking at right here is the first major site we're going to talk about in Capernaum. What you're seeing is a synagogue. Uh, and you may be thinking to yourself, wow, well, that is so well-preserved. I told you last week that most of what we saw were rocks on the ground. That's, that's, sometimes we'd make a joke in the morning and say, hey, let's go out and see some rocks, because that's kind of what it was in some ways. But of course, it was way more special than that. You're, you're probably thinking, well, how did this synagogue, how was it so well-preserved? How was it that all of the other places were raised or leveled, and here we are 2,000 years later, and we see this synagogue. Well, it's kind of a trick question. This isn't actually the synagogue that Jesus would have taught in. Now, this was a synagogue built on top of a synagogue. So you can see it is the location. It is on top of the synagogue that would have been there during Jesus' time. You can see in the picture the columns and the walls that are well preserved. It is not the same synagogue that Jesus was in. In fact, this is a 4th century synagogue replica or a 4th century synagogue built on top of the synagogue of Jesus, which, if you ask me, is still pretty impressive. This is from the 4th century. In the 4th century, they knew very well that this, is the, this was the site of the synagogue in Capernaum. In fact, you can see the black stones underneath. That would have been the original synagogue, So it's not that you couldn't see any parts of it. The black stones that you see underneath the white stones would have been the original foundation or part of the original walls of the synagogue that we read of in this scripture passage. Now I took this particular picture because you're probably wondering what does that sign uh, right there say? And basically what it says is it says the late 4th century AD white synagogue built upon the remains of the synagogue of Jesus. So you can see underneath these black stones, this is called basalt, and this would have been common in the buildings of that area, it was kind of a dark volcanic type rock uh, that they used to build various kinds of buildings in this area. The original synagogue was pillaged, and so in the 4th or 5th century, Christians built a second synagogue on top, once again knowing that it was a very special location wanted to pay tribute to it. Now, today, if you found the ancient ruins of something or somewhere, especially biblical ruins, the last thing you would probably do is build something on top. Okay, archaeologists, would compl- they, would, they wouldn't, couldn't stand that. What you do is you uncover and you find stones around there that may have been an original part of it. What they did in the 4th and 5th century is bad practice when it comes to archaeology and restoration. But that's okay, we won't hold it against them, that was a long time ago. Uh, It was still a neat site to visit. And so once again, we'll get a good vantage point of the synagogue. You can imagine, you can see some of the seats on the side. People would have sat around the side and heard the teaching of the scribe, or in, in, in the case of the passage today, Jesus would have taught in or been in that area, as would the other supporting characters of this story. Now that was one of the most confusing aspects of this trip for me. Um, almost every holy site, you weren't actually looking at the building Jesus was in or what happened. You were often looking at something that was built on top, or on top of that, or on top of that. And that's where it often got confusing, because a lot of times what you're looking at may have been built in the 16th century. For instance, if you see a, a, a picture right now of Jerusalem, for instance, and you see that big wall going around the central part of the city, you say, wow, how cool it is to gaze upon the wall of Jerusalem. That was built in the 16th century. Most of what you want to see, if you want to see ancient ruins, where Jesus walked or where Jesus was born or where he died, you have to go usually into a church and go deep underground because the landscape changes so much over time. So oftentimes we were looking at what was built on top of what would have been there at the time of Jesus. All that being said, that didn't make it any less special. Clearly, the early church knew this was a special location. They knew that Jesus taught here, Jesus cast out demons here. Uh, But once again, one devotional thought, or maybe just a a philosophical point on top of all of this, that was the common theme throughout all these sites. It was the Jewish site, then it was destroyed, and it was built by early Christians, then Muslim invaders pillaged the place and then Christian crusaders came through and pillaged their buildings and rebuilt so one after the other and it makes it rather confusing but it's also a sobering reminder that the most holy land in the world has caused more bloodshed than probably you or I could imagine over the past couple of thousand years and that should give you some pause the place that is considered most holy to a majority of the people in the world whether you are Christian whether you are Jewish whether you are Muslim has also been the subject or the place of so much bloodshed. What does that say about us? We read in the scripture, and I want to show you one more slide. This is more of an indication. You can see sort of towards the upper part of the picture, that's the synagogue. But then below, you can see some of the foundations, the black stone that we were talking about earlier. So what you're looking at there are the remains of the city of Capernaum there beside the synagogue. So that gives you a better indication of what the old city would have looked at or how it would have been laid out. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Uh, We learned about that, we read that, we heard about it, and I'll offer a couple of additional thoughts here momentarily. But we also read in this passage that Jesus left the synagogue and went into the house of Simon and Andrew. So literally, if you look just to the left of this big building that you see, and it's not in the, the frame, but the synagogue would have been there. These were no more than 25 yards apart. And so Jesus left the synagogue and would have come to this place. Now, as the theme goes, do you think that this building was there at the time of Jesus? No, absolutely not. In fact, you may be thinking, hey, I've seen that. That was an Independence Day, right? The alien spaceship. That's not an alien spaceship as much as it might look like one uh, from the outside. That is a church that was built in the, I believe, the 1960s, if I remember correctly. Once again, not 50 yards from the synagogue, but it was built on top of the site, that was traditionally associated with Peter and Peter's family's house, Peter's mother-in-law's house, that we read about in the Scripture today. So we did just as Jesus did. We left that synagogue and walked right over uh, to the house of Peter and his family. Once again, multiple sites built on top of this particular house. In fact, at one time, so if, if it were truly Peter's house... We know that from early on there was a house church here because we find ancient inscriptions of crosses and things like that. So that's pretty exciting. Once again, they knew this was a holy site. It was regarded as that, and so they turned it into a church. And then in the 4th century, they enclosed it in a larger building or a basilica, the first kind of church that were that were built after house churches. So the first kind of church that we imagine as a church, as a public building, enclosed in a larger basilica in the fourth century. And then in the fifth century, another building built on top of it, a larger octagonal church. And there are still mosaics there from that particular church. And then uh, sometime in the 20th century, this Roman Catholic church was built on top of the ancient house, on top of this ancient Byzantine church. That's the story of most of the sites that we've visited, as far as that's concerned. This is just a look inside the church. You'll see all the seats, kind of a stadium-type seating, around the center of the church, and you can see towards the back the altar. Um, but what we'll see right here in the middle, you see this gated area right here, this place that has rails on it. There's a glass window right here, and so you can look down into and past the glass, and you won't be able to tell much from this picture. But that's what you see when you look down. So you're seeing the ancient remains of not just a couple of older churches or basilicas, but also what we believe are the remains of Peter's house, the one that Jesus went into after he left the synagogue. And once again, Christians from a very, very, very early point knew this place to be the house of Peter and the house of Peter's family. It's interesting I I thought well that's a neat way to show off some ruins that you could come up and look down into the house and and look down into it it's a way to protect the original foundation but you could also see it but I thought they I know what they're doing here because if you look over to Mark chapter 2 verse 1 what is the story in your bible they lower the paralyzed man down to the house It may have happened here as well. So I kind of wonder if the original construction of this church kind of thought, hmm, this may bring to mind or this may bring to life the scripture of the man being lowered into the house through the roof to be healed by Jesus. So who knows? Maybe we, as we gaze down through that glass and into that old house, perhaps we had the same view as those men who lowered the paralyzed man on a mat into the house to be healed. Those are the kind of things that made the trip special. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. A couple of concluding thoughts and a couple of devotional thoughts about what we saw and what we learned from the scripture. There were two scenes here. The scene in the synagogue where the possessed man comes to Jesus with an unclean spirit And he says, what have you come to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? It was said in the synagogue, because Jesus had a new way of doing things, of walking into a religious site such as a synagogue, and he sought to change things. Now, I will go ahead and give credit to my dean, Dr. Robert Canoy, for saying this, because I didn't say it. But he said, have you ever walked into a church before in your ministry as a layperson, And have you found people to be very resistant to change and doing things new? I, I didn't say that, by the way. That was him. I would never think that about any church that I went to. I've never experienced that, by the way, in my ministry career. But he makes a good point. And he wasn't saying that church members who might be resistant to change are demon-possessed, that he was not trying to make that connection. The point he was trying to make is that Jesus enters into our midst and does some surprising things among us. Surprising to the point where it makes us uncomfortable. Jesus is seeking to change things. Jesus is seeking to change things in our lives to transform us individually, to be rid of the sin that so easily entangles us. But Jesus also looks to change our places of worship in our churches. Jesus is always calling on us to do new things, to find new ways to share his love. That was an important reminder for us. The way things have always been done is not an indication that they should always stay that way. New things are not necessarily wrong or evil. With Jesus, newness should be expected. That's true of us who are not demon-possessed either. I need to hear that as well. I know sometimes when you look at your pastor who's 35 years old and is trying his best to grow a beard and can't quite do it, you think, he he must want all new things. He's all about change and doing new things differently. And, and, And some of you who have worked closely with me know sometimes I need to be prodded a little bit to change. Sometimes I'm a little more unwilling to do something new. And you know that because us pastors tend to be selfish and believe we're right all the time. So I need this verse as a reminder that Jesus is doing new things in me and in my ministry and in our church as well. Jesus leaves and enters Simon Peter's house. And Jesus also has an authority over sickness. And so both of these passages speak of the divine power and authority that Jesus has over sickness, over the demons, over the powers of this world that entangle us. And immediately after healing, what does Simon Peter's mother do? She waits on them. She serves them. And so with healing comes service. When we are healed by Jesus, when we are forgiven, and when we are promised eternal life as we walk alongside Him, it is not simply time to sit back and wait for our eternal reward. In this passage, Simon Peter's mother, as soon as she is healed, she begins to serve. The fever left her and she began to serve. Do you, know, do you want to know what the term is for serve? Simon Peter's mother, though not called a deacon, did the work of a deacon. She served. We are a congregation healed by Jesus Christ, individually and collectively. We celebrate the healing mercy that Jesus has done in our own lives and as a church. And when we are healed, it is an important reminder that we do not simply sit by and wait for our eternal reward. We are called to serve in the same capacity that Simon Peter's mother-in-law was served. So there's a few practical ways that you could do that coming up. For instance, in one month, we're having vacation Bible school. As every year, Karen's going to need your help because leading Bible school is just so easy. A couple people can... No, I'm only kidding, by the way. She needs your help. She needs... Your service. And so because you have been healed, are you prepared to serve? Are you prepared to offer yourself for the kids in our church and the kids in our community? In a short time, the nominating team will come to you asking if you would like to serve in a particular position. Knowing that you have been healed and forgiven by Jesus Christ, are you prepared to serve? Or are you going to say, well, someone else can do that. I've already done my time. Time for someone else. We're just a short time away from deacon nominations. Have you been healed and called to serve there as well? There are opportunities for service, even when not an official appointment of the church, and I want to make sure that is not lost either. Because yes, there are official ways that you can serve through this congregation, and we always need that And we need you to be willing to serve in those ways. But there are times when you walk outside these doors and we will not be looking at you and we will not be keeping tabs on you, but you will still have a place to serve. Because you walk out of these doors healed by Jesus and you will be prepared to serve the least of these amongst you, in your family, in your schools, in your places of work, in your neighborhood. So yes, offer yourself for service in this church, but offer yourself unofficially when the eyes of the world are not on you, when you're maybe in the confines of a house. Give of yourself because you have been healed. This is a reminder for us today. I hope and pray that the scriptures have come to life for you and that most importantly, as you celebrate, new eternal life in jesus christ that you would always be at the ready to serve let's pray together